0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And have you ever found yourself so gripped in the throes of a conflict with a friend, a family member, some stranger online, that you're blinded by a kind of rage that feels like it could overtake you at any moment? Have you found yourself questioning the other person's sanity, baffled as to why they could ever believe what they believe? then you've experienced what is known as high conflict. Our guest this week has spent the last several years researching how we come to be trapped in this kind of conflict and how we can work together to find our way out. Amanda Ripley is a New York Times bestselling author and an investigative journalist for The Atlantic and other outlets. Her latest book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, published in April, Chronicles the stories and the psychology of people who have moved out of dysfunctional, self destructive conflict and into healthier kinds of conflict all around the world. Amanda's previous book, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way, was a New York Times bestseller published in 15 countries and turned into a documentary film with the same name. She spent a decade writing about human behavior for Time magazine in New York, Washington, and Paris. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
0: Well, you're very welcome. So I'd like to start with a quote from the introduction to your newest book, High Conflict, which I mentioned in the intro. Quote, This is a book about the mysterious force that incites people to lose their minds in ideological disputes, political feuds, or gang vendettas. The force that causes us to lie awake at night obsessed by a conflict with a coworker or a sibling or a politician we've never met. End quote. Now, What I found brilliant about your book and why I thought it was especially relevant to our listeners is it it kind of weaves together a tapestry of thematically interconnected personal stories to both identify and offer solutions to the problems of high conflict. But seeing as this is an hour-long conversation and not a 10-hour audiobook, which I would recommend to anyone interested, I wanted us to use this time to allow you to offer some tips on how our listeners can identify high conflict in their own lives and relationships, and what they might do to curb it. So to start us off, what is high conflict? How would you define it?
1: High conflict is a kind of conflict that can really start about anything, but gradually it takes on a life of its own. And what I mean by that is it seems to operate on autopilot and anything you do to try to get out of the conflict usually makes it worse. So high conflict is a kind of conflict where there's almost always an us and a them and things start to feel very clear And there's a sense of moral superiority that sort of clicks in on each side. And in that state, our brain behaves a little differently than normal. And we start to make significant mistakes and miss things about the problem or each other or ourselves. And eventually everyone in high conflict ends up suffering to different degrees.
0: Yeah, you've compared in another podcast interview, you've compared high conflict to sort of a chinese finger trap, right? The the more you pull, the tighter it gets.
1: Exactly. And I think of that a lot when I read the news, the, <laughs> the headlines, because it's like it's a little bit diabolical, isn't it? The more you try to end it, the worse it gets. And so you really have to play a different game altogether.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what I want to talk about with you today. Now, when someone hears high conflict and they're not necessarily familiar with your book, It might be hard for them to differentiate between high conflict and what you would describe in the book as good conflict, right? You say, quote, high conflict is different from the useful friction of healthy conflict. That's good conflict, and it's a force that pushes us to be better people, end quote. So, in what ways does good conflict differentiate itself from high conflict? And how can someone know when they're in the middle of a good conflict, the kind that they want to foster rather than completely avoid?
1: Yeah, you know, I started out on this book about four years ago, looking for stories and case studies of people or communities who had gotten out of conflict, because it felt like as a journalist, all we were doing was just describing how terrible the conflict was, or making it worse, or both, right? And it just felt like, what does something else look like? And I realized pretty quickly that I was asking the wrong question. It's not about getting out of conflict. Because to your point there are really good kinds of conflict that we actually need more of, not less. And the distinction is good conflict, healthy conflict can be stressful and heated and uncomfortable. You can get angry, you can be frightened, you can be sad, frustrated, all of those things. The difference is really about the movement. So bear with me for a second. The movement by which I mean, you can feel that it's going somewhere and you're not sure where it goes, and you can actually see it in the data. When you study people who are in good conflict, people ask more questions, and they cycle through a wider range of emotions. So not just anger and rage, (laughs) but also glimpses of understanding. Curiosity still exists from time to time, maybe not the whole time, right? But there is a sense of movement through those emotions, and you can see it in the research. So, you might feel angry, then frustrated, then sad, then curious, then intrigued, then angry, then frustrated. Whereas with high conflict, you're really trapped in anger and frustration, and sometimes more destructive emotions like contempt and disgust, right? So, I sort of did a (laughs) side-by-side chart in the appendix of the book to help people sort of see the difference. And so, good conflict tends to be characterized by fluidity, high conflict by rigidity. Good conflict, there's complexity that still exists. High conflict becomes very simple, right? Good, bad, black, white, Democrat, Republican, and you start generalizing about many millions of people who you don't know and will never meet. So, in good conflict, you can be surprised. And in high conflict, you almost never are surprised. You're just chagrined, right? (laughs) Or baffled, but you're not surprised.
0: Yeah. Bafflement seems to be one of the key markers of understanding that you're in high conflict when you just simply, you can't for the life of you understand what motivates the other side. And it feels like one of the things that is kind of necessary to end that loop is repeated exposure right? And you were writing this book while you wrote and covered a small town in upstate New York, which was the quote least politically prejudiced place in America. I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly Watertown, New York, yes. or is it Waterton? No, Watertown, you got it.
1: Watertown,
0: <laughs> Watertown. <laughs> I never know those East Coast names. <laughs> I was corrected on Lancaster when I first visited Lancaster, Pennsylvania, because we have a Lancaster out here in California, and I was immediately corrected by the hotel clerk. But <laughs> so. I'd love to hear a little bit about your time in Watertown, about how that town specifically, because it it is related, I think, to the thrust of this book, about how that town specifically was able to avoid, in many ways, the high conflict that kind of besieges us at a national scale and in many of our day-to-day lives. And it seems like a lot of that was just repeated exposure to, quote, the other, right?
1: Yeah. Well, so what I wanted to do with that project for The Atlantic was try again to find the outliers. So when you're in high conflict as a country, as we are, you tend to sort of lose hope. I don't know if you've felt that way, but I certainly have. Yes. (laughs) And that unto itself prolongs and worsens the paralysis of high conflict. So I felt like one thing that journalists could potentially do that's useful, and there's a lot that's not useful, is to try to find the outliers. Where are the places where things are working differently, even if it's imperfect, right? Because that kind of revives curiosity, even in high conflict. So, working with some really smart data scientists, we map to the country based on what we know about political polarization and prejudice. And we know a lot about who tends, on average, not always, to be more politically biased against the other, whichever side that is, tends to be, actually, embarrassingly enough, people a lot like me. It tends to be people who uh, are highly educated and who are a little older. You know, I'm, I'm sort of on the low end of that, but certainly over 40. And people who are highly engaged in the news and the political news of the day, And people whose circle doesn't include a lot of political diversity. So, all those things tend to go together. White people also tend to be more politically prejudiced against the other side. So, we also know a lot about voters, a creepy amount about voters. And so, we can say with remarkable accuracy, not perfect, where those people are and where they're not. And maybe most interestingly, we can now say how much political diversity there is. At the neighborhood level, how much Democrats and Republicans interact, essentially, and also at the household level. We can create a model that approximates through the research that already exists about voters, which is, again, a lot. We know if you happen to have someone in your household and your family who thinks differently than you do politically, which is becoming more and more rare, which is sort of partly why we got here. Anyway, Watertown, New York turns out in that model to be the least politically prejudiced place in the country based on what we know about who lives there, how politically diverse it is, and also the demographics of that town up near the Canadian border. Very cold, (laughs) small town. And so, you know, I went there just to see, first of all, is this all BS? Like, does anyone here think this is true? Because, you know, we don't know. It's a model based on a lot of good data, but it's not perfect. You can't survey the entire country, literally. That would be many billions of dollars.
0: Quite difficult.
1: Uh, You always take a sample, right? So this is a new kind of research that is trying to approximate to the best we can what is going on on the ground based on on the ground data. And before telling people, you know, what we found, I interviewed All kinds of people, people in politics, people not in politics, people who worked in the restaurant, people who worked at the library, people who worked at the local newspaper and ministers and, you know, people like that. And I would ask them, so, hey, we did this model, this kind of wacky attempt to figure out where the most and least politically prejudiced places in the country, how do you think Watertown did? And every single one, with one exception, (laughs) said they thought Watertown did very well on that ranking. And then we got into, well, why might that be? What does that look like on the ground? And the thing that comes up in those conversations and also in the research is that the civic health of a place really matters. So yes, it's important that it be politically diverse. So you actually know people, ideally in your family, but at least at work or in your neighborhood. think differently than you politically. So, it's much harder to caricature them, right? And sort of dismiss them as like subhuman when you know them, right? So, you can still disagree and people did and do, but it's harder to kind of out of hand demean and demonize them. So, it's important to have that diversity and it's important to have some civic life that makes that diversity three-dimensional and meaningful, right? It makes it land, it makes it salient. So, for example, Watertown was unusually healthy when it came to people's membership and joining the YMCA and churches. And, you know, it wasn't like a utopia by any means, but compared to the rest of the country, there was, for a variety of reasons, a fairly active civic life. And, you know, I spent some time focused on one particular church with a minister named Fred Gary, who I really enjoyed talking with, who would hold this men's breakfast on Fridays. And the men would come and he'd make a big breakfast, which is a big part of the appeal. And they would discuss a book, usually a controversial book, about politics or race in America or history. And doing this together after eating, which is important, they were able to, in a way, take advantage of that political diversity in a container, so to speak, of this church, of this group. So, there were rules of engagement. So, it didn't become just a hot mess. And so those kinds of interactions in a politically diverse place really matter all over the world, particularly in preventing violence.
0: Yeah. And you talk about how similar techniques are actually used to diffuse and prevent gang violence in places like Chicago. And I'd love to get to that in a little bit. But I think actually the story of Watertown is almost like a photo negative of the kind of community that you would at least think wouldn't be that exposed to other people and it's the community that's featured in the final chapter of high conflict titled complicating the narrative and there's a sequence in it that really connected with me because it kind of in some ways mirrored my own experience from November 8th 2016 and I'd like to just quote a little bit of that passage for the listener quote in manhattan of voters chose Clinton. Everyone just assumed she would win, myself included here in LA. Trump was a New Yorker and not well-liked by other New Yorkers. By and large, he was seen as a phony. Clown runs for prez. The New York Daily News proclaimed when Trump announced his campaign. On election day, when Trump and his wife arrived at their local polling place to vote, people booed. You're going to lose. One man yelled. Trump's victory stunned. Many of Bene Jeshurun's and I apologize for any mispronunciation there congregants. They were deeply distressed by his rhetoric about immigrants and women, and fearful about what he might do in office. They felt themselves slipping back into conflict this time with Trump supporters. End quote. A little later in the passage, you quote a synagogue member, Martha Acklesberg. Quote: I didn't know anybody I could have a conversation with. They were only stereotypes to me. End quote. That was very similar to my experience here in L.A. where I didn't know literally a single person (laughs) from my days in film school or the entertainment industry who would vote for Trump, let alone be sympathetic to a Trump voter. But their story, this progressive Jewish synagogue in New York, seems very different from the folks you were describing in Watertown in that you would think just outside of this book and what you go on to then talk about, that they would be the exact kind of community, like my community in LA, that would be kind of isolated from people who didn't think like them, right? But they took a pilgrimage of sorts to rural Michigan to meet a group of conservative Christian corrections officers who had voted for Trump. Now, it's one thing to start watching maybe Ben Shapiro or reading The Federalist. It's another thing (laughs) entirely to travel to another state to meet the other side face to face. So I love this story. For our listeners, what drove members of this congregation to seek those Trump voters out and what was it about the culture of this synagogue in particular that opened them up to the idea in the first place?
1: Yeah. And they didn't just go visit each other. They stayed in each other's homes for three days and I was able to go with them. And that is a level of intimacy that is beyond some of the sort of dialogue groups and things that people may have heard of and are important as well. But going to someone's home is, just feels very different on both sides, right? Like there's a level of vulnerability there that is quite intensely uncomfortable. And believe me when I tell you that everyone on both sides of that exchange had a lot of trepidation going <laughs> into that exchange. So yeah, on paper, there's no reason this should have happened, to your point. And there's something very interesting about Benai Gesture in this sort of mega synagogue in New York City that happened before Donald Trump was elected president. And it matters a lot. So let me just quickly explain what happened there. So This is a place that is very influential in the American Jewish community, serves some 2,000 families on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, has been around for a very long time. And at some point, a conflict erupted internally in the synagogue. This was about five years before Trump was elected. And the conflict was over Israel. And this has happened in a lot of American synagogues and to the point where many rabbis just never talk about Israel uh, or the Palestinian conflict because it is so radioactive. And in this case, the rabbis at this synagogue, which is known as BJ, the rabbis had kind of publicly applauded a decision by the UN to allow Palestine to be a non-member voting state. And this small development, relatively small in the scheme of things, sparked a real conflagration that became public. It was on the front page of the New York Times. Many congregants just felt very betrayed by their rabbi's support of this decision and said so. Many left the community. It was very surprising and intense for everyone involved. So, the rabbis did what most of us do in sudden conflict within our own group, which is very disturbing to us as humans. (laughs) They apologized and tried to move on, right? That's usually what we do to survive. And unfortunately, when you have high conflict, this level of conflict doesn't go away. You can bury it, you can suppress it, you can ignore it, it'll come back. And usually, it'll be stronger. And so, that's what happened about a year later. This flared up again, this time landing in the Washington Post. Again, there was that public element, which always kind of makes things feel more shameful. And this time, the rabbis were convinced by a very wise congregant to do something quite different, which is to lean into the conflict, as they put it. So, they brought in mediators who had worked in the Middle East, And they had them spend an entire year. So it wasn't just, you know, a workshop or a lecture. You know, it was like a year of really hard work changing their traditions in the synagogue around conflict, period. Right. So really cultivating norms and traditions and systems that create good conflict, that go into it as opposed to away, but get deeper and don't just remain stuck in the same talking points. So they had. You know, hard conversations in people's homes that were personal. They did do lectures and other workshops and those things, but it wasn't this kind of, when I heard that, it sounded kind of like kumbaya to me, you know, but actually it was more like an Ironman competition. Like it was hard, hard work and there were much more pleasant things everyone could have been doing. But there was this point for most people involved when they started experiencing the conflict differently. And it's a physical feeling when you start to realize there's something you had assumed about the other person or other side that was not right. And it opens you up and you sort of feel your mind opening. And once you've had that feeling, even as you disagree, you continue to disagree, there's a kind of space for curiosity and even delight, you know, in the other person's difference that they could come to something so differently and that they're not subhuman at the same time and that you disagree at the same time, right? And so, they began to actually almost enjoy going into conflict in this way and realizing, you know, it was a humbling experience. There was a lot that they thought they knew and didn't know. And there were some things that they continued to believe that they had always believed and would never stop believing. And so, this opened up a whole new possibility when Trump was elected because this was now kind of an established tradition in the synagogue to lean into conflict. And the problem at first, as Martha notes, as you quoted her saying, is that they didn't know anyone (laughs) who had voted for Trump. So that's why they had to get creative. And luckily, there was an organizer named Simon Greer, who knew both groups who was trusted by both groups, which is very important, by the rural Michigan conservative corrections officers and by the urban liberal (laughs) New York Jews. And he's the one whose idea was to do these homestays.
0: Yeah, that almost, (laughs) that setup almost sounds like the start of a joke. So you've got a rural Christian corrections officer, but there was something that you said in an appearance on the Braver Angels podcast that really stuck with me as well, because There definitely seems to be a theme with the anecdotes you've referenced so far, whether it's the church breakfast book club in Watertown or the kind of fostered traditions and rituals that the synagogue had to take on to kind of confront this conflict head on. But there can also be these moments of kind of body felt revelation that can come almost surreptitiously. And you kind of experienced this in, I think it may have been your first or one of your first braver angels Yeah, seminars, right? You were listening to two, quote unquote, reds, as Braver Angels calls them. I've gotten a chance to go to one of their meetings before lockdown happened. And there's reds and blues, right? And there was this moment where you were watching two reds kind of talk about something non-political, And you had this kind of moment yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that and how those moments can kind of happen without a lot of preparation?
1: Yeah, that was really surprising because I had come to this Braver Angels workshop, I think it was in McLean, Virginia, outside of DC where I live. And I had come with a lot of sort of subconscious and conscious expectations about what this would be. And I went as a journalist. So there's a kind of remove in my approach to something when I'm there for work, right? So I was sort of separating myself psychically from (laughs) this event, right? I was literally sitting on the margins of the room and, you know, what they do, as you know, having had John on your podcast, is that they will have the Reds do a sort of conversation on the inside of the circle about what they love about the Republican Party, and then they will talk about what gives them pause and, and that kind of thing. And the Blues, the Democrats, are sort of listening on the outside, and then they switch, right? And I'm just sort of watching this, taking notes in my notebook from my, like, safe remove, right? <laughs> and two guys who identified as red, as conservative, and I tend to lean left, not on everything, but many things. These two conservatives, they just were really funny. And so, as they were talking, they just were funny. You know what I mean? Like there was something likable about their senses of humor. And I actually felt it before I consciously articulated it, if that makes sense, you know, (laughs) where I felt myself liking these guys. So, it broke through both my political biases and my journalistic remove because I felt myself liking them, which I'm trying not to do, I guess, subconsciously. I didn't really realize I was (laughs) trying not to do that, but it was a really small moment where you realize how knowing each other changes things. And I still disagreed with them on many things, right? But it was actually a good feeling. It was a good feeling not like, oh, we're all going to get along. Everything's fine. It was much more like, oh, man, things are more complicated than you think, right? Kind of like looking up at the stars. You're like, oh, man, that is, <laughs> that is hard for me to get my head around, but also wonderful, you know, awe-inspiring. And Martha put it really well. And Martha, the Upper West Side, <laughs> very liberal New Yorker that you quoted from earlier who went on this exchange to Michigan. Afterwards, she said, I feel like this brought out the best of me. And she said, I wish I could appear everywhere in my life the way I felt called to appear there. Present, open, able to be surprised. So I thought she articulated that really well. And that was a feeling I had then.
0: Yeah, that's really beautiful. And it seems like that what you were experiencing there in that moment, when you went from seeing these reds, quote unquote, right, simply as reds, even though you were there, as a reporter and you weren't there necessarily as just amanda a person just Mm -hmm. existing in that space you were kind of experiencing a variation of what the colombian government was kind of tapping into as they tried to de-escalate the colombian conflict which is an asymmetric war that's been going on in the country since 1964 as they were trying to reach out to farc otherwise known as the revolutionary armed forces of colombia they were trying to tap into something known as latent identities Mm -hmm. and Kind of tap into the idea that we all have multiple identities, right? We're not just one thing. We're not just either red or blue or guerrilla fighters. We're a whole host of many things. And I would love to just kind of have you talk about that a little bit, not necessarily get too far into the weeds with the Colombian conflict, although I think that's relevant, but how the average listener can kind of tap into that idea about how we're not just one thing, like those two gentlemen who were cracking jokes that kind of let you into their lives.
1: Yeah. So I went to Colombia for high conflict because they have so much experience, unfortunately, with trying to get people to leave conflict over half a century of civil war. So there are lots of things the government has done that has not worked. And of course, the government is deeply complicit in that war. So there's a lot we could say, but let's stick to what did seem to work, and why. There is an example that I talk about in the book, some soon-to-be-published research by a young researcher named Juan Pablo Aparicio, who was watching a Colombian national soccer team World Cup game years ago, and like all Colombians, extremely excited, hoping that his country would win. And in the middle of the game, they did a sort of public service announcement, like we see here sometimes for you know don't smoke, don't drive drunk, whatever. And the government had done many of these. But this particular one was targeted at members of the guerrilla forces of the FARC, and inviting them to come home and watch the game with their families. It was very simple, right? And at the time, Juan Pablo heard this, and he felt like, why does anyone think that would work? You know, this is just absurd. Like, it's so naive. And years later, he read about a study that had been done in Rwanda. And it was a 2014 study by someone named David Yanagazawa Dra that looked at the effects of speech like this on a popular radio station, which was doing the opposite. Instead of inviting people to leave the conflict, it was encouraging people to escalate the conflict. And it called for the people on this radio station would routinely call for the extermination of the Tutsi minority during the 1994 Rwandan genocide. And in this study that David did, which was so clever, he could see that as radio reception improved across Rwanda, the killings increased. And something like 50,000 Rwandans may have been killed as a result of these radio broadcasts in part. So in other words, inciting people to escalate the conflict did seem to work when it was just messaging, right? Propaganda. So one of the lessons from that is that words mattered and that conflict entrepreneurs in Rwanda had broadcast hatred at scale on the radio, and it had devastating consequences. So, that made Juan Pablo back in Colombia wonder, hmm, is there an inverse of this? Can you pull people out of conflict with messaging this simple? And so, he was able to do a study similar to the one in Rwanda where he could see where the weather was such that the radio reception would have been good, in which case the FARC guerrilla members in the jungle would have almost certainly listened to Colombian national soccer games. And they knew that from interviewing former FARC members that you know are very dedicated to the game of soccer and to the Colombian national team. Even as they were fighting against the government, they still had great loyalty to the team. And so they would almost religiously listen to these games when they could. But when it was raining, they didn't get radio reception. So Juan Pablo could compare the parts of the country where those messages urging people to come home were likely heard by the FARC and where they were not And what he found is over the nine years that those ads ran, urging people to leave the conflict and come home and watch soccer with their family, there were about 20 extra demobilizations after one of those ads ran, which was 10 times the daily average. And the defections from the guerrilla forces stayed up for a number of days after the ad ran. So over time, this meant that actually, according to his estimate, more people may have left the conflict in Colombia because of those ads than because of the peace treaty that was signed in 2016. So, you know, it's a very big deal because previous to that, the best way to get people to leave the FARC was massive military victories on behalf of the government against the FARC, right, which is a bloody, costly, destructive way to get defections. So it's an example of how, to finally circle back to your point, how we carry multiple identities around with us, right? And different ones are salient or front of mind at different times in our lives. But one way to help people out of high conflict is to revive their other identities that are not central to the conflict. It's very hard, really impossible, to get people to give up their conflict identity, especially if they've dedicated much of their lives To that identity and it gives them purpose and meaning and solidarity. But you can create a new identity or revive an existing identity, especially powerful seems to be in lots of examples around the world, our identities as children or parents or grandchildren. Those identities are very deep, right? And so, that is one way you can help kind of nudge people. It's not enough, right? Like there's more that has to happen, but you can help nudge people who are already looking for something else to leave the jungle in this case.
0: Yeah, whether the jungle is literal Mm -hmm. (laughs) or metaphorical, so to speak. I mean, it's almost like a word cloud, right? In that if anyone can picture that in their minds where you'll see like, how many times does this word appear in this book? Or how many times was it said in this TV show? And there's all these kind of bubbles of the word Range Rover was said 84 times as opposed to the word the, which was said a thousand times, right? So you have small bubbles Hmm. and larger ones. And it sounds like your point, the point that's made in the book is you can never make any one of these particular bubbles, any one of these identities completely disappear. Because like you said, it's part of who a person is is. But it sounds like what you can do is you can encourage someone to make that bubble larger or smaller, more or less salient. Is that right?
1: Exactly. And it's really important. This is where what William Urey, the negotiator, calls the third side is so important. So you have us, you have them, and then there's usually a third side, right? It's the, your friends and family and colleagues and neighbors who are not themselves totally captured by the high conflict, whatever it is, But who can be very useful and very powerful in helping you out. So they help you remember the costs that you are paying and they help you remember your other identities or create new identities outside of the conflict. So it is really important, especially at times like this, right? So politically, where we have a lot of anger and rage and contempt on both sides in the United States, this is a very dangerous time. But there are people, millions of Americans, certainly, who would like something else, even ones who are very much in the conflict, who are members of Congress or state lawmakers or mayors, certainly journalists who I've heard from, people who are in the conflict and are really wanting something else, but it is almost impossible to just walk away for lots of evolutionary and psychological reasons, right? This is where people around you can be very helpful in sort of escorting you out of the worst of that conflict. And again, you don't give up. Like, this is where sometimes people fear that I'm saying, oh, you should be bipartisan and seek unity and moderate your views. And that's actually not what I mean to say. What I mean to say is, you don't give up, you actually fight for the thing you hold dear. But you're much more effective at it. And you see this even with Sandra, the former FARC guerrilla that I followed in Colombia. She entered that civil war for justice for Colombian people, right? And she still is pursuing that, but she is much, much more effective in doing that. And she's able to be a mother to her children. So, in every case in the book, whether it's a politician or the former gang leader that I followed, or regular voters like Martha, once people shift from high conflict to good conflict, they are able to fight much more effectively and be less miserable in their own heads, right? So, that's what you want to help people do. You don't want them to change their minds or give up all their beliefs. That's not necessarily a good idea and almost impossible (laughs) to achieve, but you want to channel it in a more useful, healthier fashion.
0: Yes. And having that And you mentioned the importance of having a third party around uh, someone who can act as a conflict mediator, a Gary Friedman, if you will, who is discussed in this book at some length. But I'd love to talk about instances in which you may not have that third party, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's a conflict you're getting in with a friend or a loved one or a coworker, someone online, someone online might actually be a little more difficult with this particular instance, but there was a quote that you had where you were talking about your experience as a journalist and you know, you have a history of listening to people because you're reporting on their lives, but you had said, quote, I had mistaken nodding and smiling for listening. There is a difference between looking like you're listening and proving that you've listened, end quote. And I want to use that as kind of a bridge to go into the importance of active listening and what is known as looping, which you go into in the book. Because I think that those two things, active listening and then looping with the person you're listening to can be very helpful for people who may not have a third person conflict mediator and just as a useful tool in day-to-day life. So could you talk about both those things? a little bit and how they kind of played, I think, a through line through almost every chapter of the book.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because this is the thing that has really altered my day to day life and work more than anything else. And I feel like it's really useful in a way that people can put into action like today. You know, it doesn't solve everything, but it is like the skeleton key to conflict, to making it healthier. This all started for me when I went to, as part of the early stage of reporting this Book is I wanted to understand people who understand conflict, people who study it deeply, differently than journalists, right? And one of the things I wanted to do was get some training in conflict mediation. So I went to Mexico for a week and got some training. Mostly it was there with lawyers. Uh, I was the only only journalist, but there were lawyers and therapists there who also work with people in intense conflict, whether they're divorcing or dealing with labor strikes or other things. And the instructor, one of the instructors was named Gary Friedman, who helped really invent the field of conflict mediation as we know it today in the United States. He was a sort of recovering lawyer in the 70s when he started doing things very differently outside of the normal us versus them frame of the law. And it seemed to work really well and eventually took off. And he's written three books on mediation. He's taught at Harvard and Stanford and helped thousands of clients through really really ugly, difficult conflicts of all kinds. And one of the things that Gary and and other mediators teach is active listening. He calls it looping for understanding in his case. And I was, again, I was kind of like a skeptic about this. You know, I I, I felt like I had been interviewing people for 20 years for Time Magazine and other places, and I was pretty good at it. Now, granted, no one had trained me No one had given me feedback or (laughs) there was no reason to believe I was good at this, just that I've been doing it a long time. And I thought that nodding and preparing well and smiling when appropriate and encouraging people was listening. And it's just absolutely not the case. So they paired us off and had us try listening to another person for just a few minutes and really try to listen for what seems most important to them not to me. So already this is very different (laughs) than traditional journalism. And then try to distill it into the most elegant language you can muster and play it back to them. And then this is the part that I used to (laughs) forget in the beginning. You check to see if you got it right. And you have to say it in a tone where you genuinely want to know, like, is that right? You know, and you have to genuinely want to know (laughs) is the problem, right? Like you have to really practice that. That kind of being curious, even though you think you know what they're going to say next, you have to be open to the fact that you may not know. And what you find when you practice this is that often you get it wrong and people will say, what they'll say is you say, oh, so it sounds like you were really just exhausted by the way your boss was treating you. Is that right? And then the person will say, "Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. Which means it's not right. So then you say, what did I miss? And then they say something even more interesting and they go deeper and deeper because they can tell you're really trying to get them, trying to understand them, even when you get it wrong. And it's a sort of iterative process that allows you to really try to understand what's going on with them and helps them understand even. This is one of the things that happens a lot because I now train journalists in looping from time to time and, and they often find that being heard in this way helps them For the first time, actually articulate what was bothering them because very rarely do most of us feel heard and very rarely do most of us listen deeply.
0: Yes. And as to how this can help journalists, I mean, I can imagine that in the same way, and this is kind of very personal for me because I was in a years long relationship that kind of turned acrimonious after the first couple of years, and we kind of finally sought out couples therapy, right? And one of the things that we both learned was this exact technique, active listening, and then repeating back, mirroring to the other person what they said in as generous an interpretation as we possibly could muster. And one of the things that I noticed in that experience, and it was like deeply moving, was two things. One, when you nail it, It can be such an emotional breakthrough for both the other person and for you, especially if you've gone through like a years long conflict where both of you just kind of have your guards up when you finally actually click with someone and they can tell that you've really listened and you are repeating, not just repeating, but you are giving back to them the emotional
1: Mm.
0: and we'll talk about this in a second, the emotional understory of what they're trying to talk to you about. Is Super, super important. But I think even more importantly, and I'm now making the connection as to why this could be really good for journalists, both from a selfless and a selfish point of view, is that when someone can tell that you're actively trying to understand them rather than just get whatever point you want to get across, they are more apt to continue to give more because they can see that you're trying. You know?
1: Yeah, it's actually incredible. Like, There's really interesting research on this by Guy Itchikoff in Israel who looks at listening in a sort of more academic and quantifiable way. And he and his colleagues have found that when people feel heard in this way, they tend to say more nuanced, less extreme things afterward because they're not trying to get your attention so badly, right?
0: Right, because they know they have it. Yeah, yeah, they have
1: it. And then they can surface their own kind of ambivalence and their own internal conflicts, which are actually Mm -hmm. much more interesting, especially for journalists, especially in conflict. So, if you think about what that means, if you don't feel heard, you're going to get more and more extreme in what you say next. And if you do feel heard, you're going to get more and more nuanced and more real and more complicated in what you say. So, that is a foundational difference, right, in the kind of storytelling that journalists are going to be able to do, particularly in polarizing conflict. So, yeah, there's good research behind this, you, even with in other fields. You know, when patients feel heard by their doctors, they're much more likely to follow their doctor's orders. By the way, it doesn't mean that the doctor agrees with them. <laughs> this is a distinction that I think we've got to mm-hmm. make very clear, When I am trying to understand someone I'm interviewing, I don't necessarily agree with them on anything they're saying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I might even find some of what they're saying deeply offensive and frightening, but I'm not live on the air. I'm trying to understand them. You know what I mean? So that I can make sense of what is going on underneath this conflict. You know, why does it keep going on autopilot? And so people typically can tell that you're trying to get them And they don't mistake that for your agreeing with them. (laughs) Yes, And this is a really important distinction. And it's the same in finance. You know, people who believe their financial advisors are listening to them and want to understand them are more likely to pay them for their services and trust them. And it's employees who feel like their bosses are trying to get them and really do hear them, even as they disagree, work harder and perform better. So the thing I hate about it is it sounds Mm. so soft and like, woo-woo, right? Like, oh, listening. You know, I almost wish there were different words because I'm someone who's not super open to a lot Mm of that kind of squishy, amorphous, abstract, new age. Yeah. So, I kind of hate how I sound when I'm talking about it, but Mm -hmm. I like to believe that that makes it more accessible for people who are like me, who are skeptical of this stuff. And There's a lot of science behind this, and it is much more intellectually and emotionally challenging and interesting than it sounds.
0: Yes. And I'm right there with you because I've done both, obviously, as I mentioned, couples therapy, and I've also done an individual therapy. And I found cognitive behavioral therapy very helpful because it kind of circumvented that aversion I have to the Uh woo-woo, as you said. And cognitive behavioral therapy kind of gives you sort of a project. There were a lot of like worksheets that kind of tapped into the analytical part of my brain. Mm-hmm. And I think similarly here, if I can yes and what you were saying about the mirroring, I would say to anyone who is skeptical who's listening to this, I would say how I connected with it is you have to look at it as a project unto itself, as an assignment almost, which doesn't sound super emotional if you think about it in that way. But I was able to kind of take it on as like, okay, in some ways, I was like, I want to impress the therapist and I want to impress my loved one here by showing them how mm-hmm. much I'm nailing giving back to them, which again, I'm admitting this now, but like, it was how I was able to get into that zone of like, okay, like, because if you get stuck and you've said this so eloquently already, like if you get stuck with the idea that you have to agree with what they're saying, then you actually won't hear them at all because all you'll be doing is just thinking, nope, disagree with that. Nope. Disagree. Nope. That's not how I remember Mm -hmm. it. Nope. But if your whole project is just, okay, how can I give back to them as good as I can, right? Because then also you're hoping that they'll do the same for you, right? But then over time, and hopefully this makes me sound a little bit less like a sociopath, over time, (laughs) taking on that project and then them mirroring back to you what you've said to them, eventually, and this is what happened in couples therapy with me, eventually you do get to a point where I got to a point where I was no longer just trying to impress Mm -hmm. the therapist Mm -hmm. or show my significant other, how good I was at mirroring them, it became, it went from a project to kind of a natural thing where Mm -hmm. after three, four, five sessions, I was mirroring naturally rather than trying to get into a headspace where I was taking it on as an assignment, if that makes sense.
1: I love that. And it reminds me of how, like, look, whatever works, you know what I mean? I think (laughs) it reminds me of how, like, I actually have a theory that most people, when we go into couples counseling, we say it's to work on the relationship, but really deep down, most people want the therapist to to yeah. validate that they're right yep. and the other yep. person's crazy and wrong and evil, right? And so... <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
0: I'm going to get them on my side. Yes. They'll see that I was right all
1: along. Yes, surely any neutral yes. third party will have to uh, take my side and then I'll be vindicated. How wrong was I? Right, of course. This <laughs> is what we all do. But you know what? It gets you in the room, right? Yep. It gets you yep. in the room. And that's a big deal. So to your point, if it's like, let me show you how good I am at deep listening, and I've definitely felt that, especially when I'm training. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I'm training. I'm gonna be the best deep I'm listener like, ever. Watch this. this is like a Jedi mind trick, you know. And yep. definitely, my ego is involved there. And yet, if you're doing it right, if you're really doing it, you will discover things you didn't expect. And yeah. so it kind of naturally starts. Your ego starts to kind of, to your point, fade a little bit and the Mm -hmm. curiosity comes up, which is really cool and kind of where I want to be. Like I want to have, I don't always achieve this, but I want to turn down my ego and turn up the curiosity, right? And so, yeah, but it does take practice, doesn't it? One thing I've started to try to urge people to do is to really practice this in a low stakes environment a lot for months. And so, don't be like, okay, next time I get in a fight with my mother, another, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> this is not going to yeah. work, you know? Wrong, so, wrong place. wrong. Time, yeah, yeah, yes, you're just too emotionally activated. At least I am, you know? So, for me, it was really helpful, actually. I mean, I, I obviously, I practice it and every time I'm interviewing someone for my job, even if it's like an academic, I interview a lot of researchers. And so, there's not a lot of obvious emotion in the conversation always, but it is important to them that you understand what, their life's work is. And so I will loop them repeatedly to establish trust and also to make sure I'm really understanding it. And it is amazing how grateful people are. You know, <laughs> like when you get it right to your point, it is a real, both people experience a little dopamine hit or something because you feel like, aha, this person is really getting me. And that's a cool feeling. And then we can go from there, right? And I'll, I might mess up the next thing, but there's some trust. So practice it with. Friends with random people you encounter, particularly when there's any emotion involved, but also really good to practice with kids. Like, I find as parenting, it is a game changer because often kids will complain and argue. And if you can just loop them and check if you got it right, it's amazing. Like, often they just want to be heard. I mean, most humans want to be heard. That's like half the challenge. And so they will stop their crusade against whatever it is (laughs) that you're trying to get them to do. Because they feel heard, right? And it's not like they think you agree with them, but they feel heard and that's enough. So that's a good way to practice it.
0: Yes. And there's a a quote that you take from Tyler Cohen, be suspicious of simple stories, I think it was. And one of the, I think, fundamental things about looping, mirroring someone else is that it can get you closer to whatever the understory of the conflict is. And what I loved about coming across that word, understory, is that it finally gave me a word for something that I had experienced and known about since my directing actor workshops you know, a decade ago.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, they'd get directors and actors into a room, our directing teacher. And you know she would always encourage, OK, when you pair off with the actors and you start rehearsing your scenes, you guys you always need to remember, right? A couple getting into a fight about dishes in this two-page scene, you should know that it's not about the dishes. It's always going to be about something else. There's an emotional undercurrent in their fight about the dishes. Either it's about infidelity or the fact that he works too much or she's feeling distant because the love has gone from their relationship, et cetera, et cetera. The dishes are the thing that they're arguing about, Hmm. but there is a thing behind the thing, which was kind of the sloppy way that I was trying to articulate it in my mind until I heard the understory, right? And so I would love for you, as we're kind of approaching the end of our discussion here, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the importance of trying to find the understory in any conflict, and how the average person can, I guess, beyond just active listening and mirroring, when they're doing that, how can both parties understand and discover what the understory of a conflict is? Because it seems like even in political conflicts, right? It's rarely about the politics. There's Mm -hmm. an understory underneath that. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit about what you discovered and kind of what the understory is.
1: Yeah. So in every conflict, there's the thing that we argue about to death that actually gets pretty boring after a while because it's very repetitive and it's not going anywhere. And then there's the thing that it's really about. And usually with our political conflict right now, it's usually about fear or humiliation at some level. And again, it doesn't make it one side right or wrong, but it is really important if you want to to get the conflict going somewhere again, to try to investigate what is that understory. So, every divorce mediator has a fun story like this about a couple that just went to war over some possession during their divorce proceeding. And it couldn't have been just about that thing. There's a case in California that's sort of legendary where a couple just would not relent on who was going to get this broken hibachi grill right in the settlement and finally the judge offered to bring in his own broken hibachi grill if they would stop arguing about it and that's because it wasn't really about the grill obviously right so trying to figure out what is this really about i'll give you a quick example i was talking with a friend of mine the other day and she mentioned she got in this huge fight with her husband because she would bought these really expensive running shoes and you know she was just going on and on us you know she really was upset about this understandably and I started asking her, you know, I wonder what that's really about. I mean, obviously it is about the money and what else is it about? And she sort of paused and was thinking about it. And for her, running is her escape. Like it's what keeps her sane. It's really important to her. And she'd lost control over a lot of other things in her life, as many of us have (laughs) during the pandemic. And this was really, it was like her thing and she could afford it. And (laughs) she made enough money to be able to buy these running shoes. Not like they were going into debt as a family. So for her, that's what those running shoes represented. And for him, spending a lot of money on material objects since he was a kid had sort of represented gluttony, you know, it was just wasteful and sort of immoral. And even though he wasn't saying those things, that was in the mix. And now does that mean that she just returns the running shoes or that he just accepts, you know, no, right? But it was very useful for her to kind of think about what was driving his reaction, even though it was wrong, right? I mean, you know, I definitely take her side in this one, but like knowing what was going on opens up a whole bunch of possibilities for how you talk about it.
0: Yes, I completely agree. It can be so difficult to kind of get at whatever the understory is for the other person, I think, because we can't fully live their lives, right? Because our values, our morals, the things that affected us as children are so different that kind of like you said, right? What something represents to one person can represent something entirely different to someone else. So are there any kind of, I guess, tips or tools that someone could potentially use to kind of understand like, oh, to me, this is just a chair, but this chair represents XYZ to my close friend or to my husband. And now that I know that that represents that, I can be a little more sensitive around that topic. How do we get there?
1: Yeah, I have a list of questions that I've been sort of compiling with help from various journalists who also want to cover conflict better. And I think the questions matter. I mean, obviously, looping, as we discussed, matters because then mm-hmm. you kind of drill down and you really listen for red flag words. There's an organization called Resetting the Table that I've done some work with in the past, and they're the ones who were involved with the synagogue mediation. And they taught me to listen for words that sound stronger than you would expect. So if someone Mm -hmm. says, I'm just ashamed that you spent this much money on running shoes, (laughs)
0: like Uh, that's a big
1: word, or I'm disgusted, or I felt sick to my stomach. Or for me, I have to slow myself down and learn to catch my reaction. I'll be like, wow, that's a bigger word than I expected. Yeah, that's a (laughs) Madlibs word. Yeah, and circle back. (laughs) Like, so you said you felt ashamed. Can you say more about that? really wanting to know. And so that's one thing is to listen differently, listen for things they don't say. Like if you ask a question and they answer a different one, that could be because your question wasn't important to them, but it's also important to notice what wasn't said. And then to ask different questions to begin with. So one question you might want to ask if you're trying to investigate the understory of a conflict that you're in is, I like this one, what would it feel like if you woke up and this problem was solved? Like walk me through that day. And what you find is people very rarely have actually thought much about that because they're in a defensive crouch, they feel threatened, particularly in like political conflict or social conflict. So they don't actually, they have to kind of take a minute, which is good. We want to interrupt those automatic talking points, right? And they walk you through that day and you can learn really interesting things about why they are fighting this fight in this way by looking at the opposite. What would happen if this problem went away?
0: Yeah. And in some ways that kind of echoes something that the social scientist Hans Peter Hansen said from the Wolf Dialogue Project, which you referenced, is that the future is something that we have in common, right? And getting someone to think about the future and think about what life could be like beyond the conflict that you're in the middle of can get someone to really open up to possibilities.
1: That's a good point. I hadn't actually made that connection, but that's right. I mean, typically people in conflict, they want to talk about the past and the past is important right? Like you have to have accountability and reckoning. But when you're trying to investigate the understory, sometimes the past isn't enough, right? You have to also talk about the future, which we share.
0: Yeah. Before I get to the last question that I ask every guest, I just want to put one more, (laughs) probably incredibly difficult question to you just really quickly, just as a parting piece of advice, I think for our listeners is that there's these three paradoxes of high conflict, which you Discuss in the book. And the first one is we are animated by high conflict, but we're also haunted by it. We want it to end and we want it to continue. So, how can we feed that part of ourselves that wants it to end? And what are the first steps that someone can take, just like the first baby steps that someone can take? Not necessarily the part of active listening, because I imagine that's a little bit further in, but what's a baby step that someone can take to foster that part of themselves that wants the high conflict to end? And what are a couple things they can do every day to make sure that that happens?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that everyone I followed who shifted from high conflict to good conflict did early on was to distance themselves in some way from the conflict entrepreneurs in their life. And these are the people or the platforms, pundits, who are really kind of exploiting the conflict for their own reasons. Sometimes it's For profit, but just as often it's for attention, a sense of purpose, camaraderie, noticing who these people are. Now, in divorces, there are often conflict entrepreneurs in the sort of extended family and friend circle of the couple who are sort of fanning the flames of the conflict. And they sometimes really intend to be helpful. But what mediators that I've spent time with have learned to do is at least figure out who those people are and what's motivating them. And sometimes they'll even bring them in bring them into the room with the couple, because this is an important factor that until you're aware of it, it's operating on you, right? So if you want to shift to good conflict, you want to think about first, like who are the conflict entrepreneurs in my life or on TV or on the radio or in my Facebook feed and create some distance between you and them. And in the case of Curtis Toler, who was the former gang leader I followed in Chicago, he literally moved across town Right. And that was a very important step in the beginning of his shift from high conflict to good conflict. But for other people, it can be changing where you get your news or changing. You know, you might have a friend that you talk about politics with who just spin each other up, like you're both on the same side, and you just, but you leave the conversation feeling worse. And so you may want to talk to them about other things, right? Because it's not helping you shift into good conflict. So those are some of the things that can be a good baby step in the direction of good conflict.
0: So, if I was to mirror you, it sounds like you're saying just delete all social media. (laughs) (laughs) Just delete Twitter, delete Facebook. Right,
1: right. Well, you know, I used to think that, oh, we should just all get off this because it's by choice that we're on these things. Mm. Nobody's forcing us. But I now actually think that that's a problem because in high conflict, what happens is all the extremists get louder and louder. Everyone else flees the scene, right? So, now you've left... The only people left in news articles or on social media or in politics are extremists, right? And conflict entrepreneurs. So like right now, less than 20% of Americans identify as very liberal or very conservative, but those people on the extremes are twice as likely to post about politics on social media, right? So you don't necessarily want to leave it, but you want to change how you interact with it.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost in some ways our I don't know if this is too strong a word, but almost the duty of someone who is less politically extreme to kind of lean in to even out the discourse so it doesn't get too extreme.
1: Yeah, because it's really hard to leave high conflict if you feel like you're the only one out there. I mean, people need mm. somewhere to go, you know, and this is yeah. what's cool about your podcast, right? It's like you're trying to create a new identity for people. It's too much to ask of people to just walk away. Mm -hmm. And not have anywhere to go. No other people, no other group. And so, it is really important, I think, to model that different kinds of conflict behavior and also to stay with people because we all will have friends and family members who are really in it, who are really in high conflict And maybe they're believing in conspiracy theories. Maybe they're being obnoxious. And sometimes you have to put boundaries up and just not interact with these people. But other times it's important to at least stay in relationship because there will be moments that arise, sort of saturation points in the conflict, shocks to the system. And they may change, they may want to leave. And it's important that you are there at those moments.
0: Well, in that spirit, Amanda, I want to pose to you the question I ask every guest. And I think it's especially apropos. Here, as individuals, we're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time. It's impossible. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to?
1: Huh. I love that question. God, there's so many. I have to just choose one. Is that the rule?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I'll give you a pass. You can do two. you
1: (laughs) You know, I've been feeling a lot of frustration lately with a group of people, and it's been making me think that I'm probably not being fair, and it's probably much more complicated than I'm allowing it to be. Just the level of righteousness that I've started to sometimes feel about it makes me a little suspicious. So I would like to be more empathetic towards teachers and teachers unions who don't want to reopen schools, because I find this really heartbreaking for lots of reasons. And it's easy for me to kind of just generalize about this huge group of people, again, who I, most of whom I don't know <laughs> and will never meet, and to remind myself that there's a lot about the year they've been through that I don't understand, and also about the many years before that. Because there's profound distrust in our country between a lot of unions and teachers and management. And that's a big, big problem that predates the pandemic. So I want to have more empathy for them. And also for journalists would be the other one. Because I sometimes feel really frustrated with my profession that it's not changing to adapt to what the public is telling us. And again, it is easy to say those things when you're not in it. I'm like a freelance reporter and author and I'm not in it every day. So those are two groups that (laughs) I would like to try to be more humble about and show more empathy for.
0: Well, Amanda, if I could try and articulate to wrap us up an emotional through line in your work, whether it's in your books or your long form essays, you seem to me to be drawn to people who have lived on both sides of a phenomenon and then had the opportunity Or been forced into a situation in which they undertake a deep kind of introspection. And then you mine that introspection, that experience for optimism, for ways for us to learn from those who have lived on both sides of the looking glass, so to speak. And I think more than ever, and I hope this doesn't sound too twee, but I think more than ever, we need optimism. We need to feel better about ourselves, better about our neighbors, and better about the future that we all. Like we said, we all share the air we breathe and we all share the future with one another. So I just want to thank you for your work and thank you for your time today. It really means a lot to me.
1: I feel very heard. I feel looped. And it was (laughs) great to be here with you today. Thank you.
0: Thank you.